G'day everyone, Rob here, and welcome to a special episode of The Doctor Who Show Presents, in this case, The Doctor Who Show Presents Hating to Love, reevaluating the 52 worst Doctor Who stories of all time. Now, if it's not apparent, this is a book that's been put together by a Starburst magazine writer and host of the Blue Box podcast, J.R. Southall, which is looking at the 52 worst Doctor Who stories of all time, but through the prism of whether they're really as bad as they seem. In fact, if I can read you from the uh, the blurb about the book, are the worst Doctor Who stories really as bad as their reputation suggests they are? It's time to don your breathing apparatus, roll up your sleeves and join a team of 10 intrepid and slightly irrational authors as they head to the bottom of the barrel in a quest to uncover the worst the series has to offer and to find out if those apples really are as rotten as they're painted. On the way, we'll meet the paving slab with the inappropriate love life, the pantomime horse that leaked green stuff all over Janet Fielding's dress, and the Dalek mutant with the phallic mane. Now, besides J.R. Southall, the other nine writers involved with this project are John Arnold, Matt Barber, Christopher Bryant, Michael S. Collins, John Davis, Tony Green, Jim Hall, Brendan Jones, and Beth Ward. And I've got to say, having seen a sneak peek at some of the essays in this book, it really is good stuff. If you like reading smart, um, intelligent pieces about Doctor Who, particularly coming from such an interesting angle, you know, taking stories that aren't regarded so well by a lot of fandom or, you know, perceived fan knowledge and uh, arguing the case for them or having some other interesting point to make about them, this really could be for you. And what we have here now on the show is an interview I did with J.R. Southall in March of 2016, so gosh, almost a year ago now. At the time, the book was on its way to coming out, and you'll hear us probably talking about it along those lines, but a few changes in personnel in the background and some extra time to write some new essays was uh, was needed, and so the book is only just coming out now after the Christmas break, and that's that's fine. They've taken their time. They've put together a really great piece of work. And I hope you enjoy this uh, interview if you've not heard it before. Or even if you did back in March, you might want to reacquaint yourself with it. And uh, think about buying the book. If you do want to buy it, go to watchingbooks.weebly.com. That's W-E-B-L-Y.com. Or if you're Facebook inclined, go to facebook.com forward slash watchingbooks. And I'm sure you'll find your way to buying a copy, whether on the Kindle or print edition from Amazon.uk or uh, whatever you like. All right, I like to keep these intros nice and short, so without any further ado, here's me talking with J.R. Southall in March of 2016 about Hating to Love, still probably the most comprehensive audio interview about this book that's been out there on the internet this past year. Anyway, here it is. Hello? Hey, J.R., it's Rob Irwin here from the Doctor Who Show. Oh, the sorry, say again. JR, it's Rob Irwin here from the Doctor Who show. Is that is that some new kind of PIP thing? <laughs> Are you trying to sell me something there? No, 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 no. <laughs> Hello, Rob. Hello there. I'm well. I was just telling our listeners about uh, a new book that's coming out called uh, Hating to Love, and who better to tell us more about it than, than yourself? Yeah, well, I suppose since it was my idea. Um... <laughs> Well, after five years of doing the You and Who books, and I guess we'll probably talk a little bit about the You and Who books later on. Oh, yes. After five years of doing those, well, the, the first thing that came into my head was I kind of wanted to do a book on Doctor Who myself, which mm-hmm. would take some of the things I talk about in the Blue Box podcast and try and do a sort of history of the program 
sort of skewed through the angles that I look at it through. You know, when you buy guides to Doctor Who, mm. they're all pretty much the same sort of thing, aren't they? they are. You'll get, yeah, you, the classics will get talked about a lot, and they'll say these are the classics. And the ones that aren't so good will tend to, you know, you'll get slightly funnier essays about those taking the mickey out of them a bit or saying these are a bit rubbish. But they don't generally tend to go into the reasons why. Mm. And one of the things that fascinates me about that is, well, going back to Caves of Androzani and the Twin Dilemma, and do you remember at the time John Nathan Turner sort of sent Eric Sayward off to do Caves of Androzani by himself and said, oh, and I'm, I'm doing the Twin Dilemma. And I think he famously told something <laughs> like Doctor Who magazine, oh, Caves of Androzani is probably going to be good, but the Twin Dilemma is going to be excellent. It's going to be one of the best <laughs> Doctor Who stories ever. Mm-hmm. And of course, it turned out not to be. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about that is those two stories were made right next to each other. Yeah. And there's no real reason. I mean... They always say things like, oh, you run out of budget by the time you do the last story in a season. Well, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case if you've put enough budget to the side. Mm. So you can't give that as an excuse for a story not doing very well. There has to be something more fundamental than that. I mean, Time Flight looks quite cheap, but then it's got all that stuff with Concord. So it's not as if it is the cheapest story in that season. Kinder, for example, was a lot cheaper than Time Flight, I should imagine. So I wanted to look at the more fundamental reasons why the stories that didn't do well didn't do well. Mm. And I wanted to do a sort of history of the program through looking at the stories that didn't do so well. I thought that would be a more interesting angle. And you could still talk about the ones that do well, but you would talk about them through the sort of fulcrum of the ones that failed. Now, how did you end up picking these stories? Did you go by ratings or did you go by just fan opinion, Doctor Who magazine polls? How did you pick them? Well, I was going to... Well, originally when I was going to do this entirely by myself, because the original idea I had was I was going to do it entirely by myself, but because of the You and Who books and how much time they take up, that Mm. became impossible. So then I thought I'll do it in a similar sort of way to You and Who. When I was going to do it entirely by myself, what I thought initially was I'd take the latest Doctor Who magazine poll and I'd, because I wanted to make it a history of the entire series, I didn't want to leave any season untouched. I was going to take the story that came bottom in each season and write the sort of history of that season through the prism of that story. But when I decided then afterwards that it was going to have to be written by a bunch of people and in the end there were ten of us all together who've each written you know, five or six essays each. Mm -hmm. So what we did then was, one afternoon, we all got together on Facebook in a sort of private resource we had for the book. And what we went through, what we did is we went through the seasons one by one and said, right, this is the obvious story for this season. But alternatively, we could end up writing about this one or this one, because for various different reasons, the story that comes bottom isn't necessarily always the one that you could describe as the worst of that season, Mm. if you know what I mean. Sometimes the one that comes bottom is bottom because it's not popular, but not necessarily because it's the worst. So we went through, because I should say, for anybody who doesn't realise, Hating to Love, the sort of tagline underneath is reappraising the 52 worst Doctor Who stories of all time, which is a huge fat lie for many different (laughs) reasons. But I thought it was a good tagline, so that's what we're going with. 
So then we sort of went through season by season and picked out one story or sometimes two because obviously there are far fewer than 52 seasons so some seasons especially the longer ones the ones with more stories we've covered by uh, talking about two stories instead of just the one and picked out the ones that we thought would be more interesting to talk about using that as the kind of definition for what we wanted to say so we picked out stories one of the stories we've picked out for example is turn left which is yeah, which is probably actually one of the more popular stories in that season, probably top two or three. But by the same token, it's probably also one of the more problematic stories in that season. Mm. In other words, for various different reasons, I think Turn Left doesn't necessarily stand up as a good Doctor Who story. Right, yes, I heard your thoughts on a recent Blue Box podcast. and it, Yeah, quite. It made me think, because I've always just watched and thought, oh, I really enjoyed that, you know, and when I think of that season or series, I think, oh, I always seem to forget about that story, and when I watch it, I'm always delighted by it, and then when I heard you talk about it, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, it's not that it's not good, and I, I, in the same podcast, actually, I talked about Midnight as well, didn't I? That's right. And I, and I think they're both great sort of episodes of TV, but not necessarily great episodes of Doctor Who. So by and in fact, it wasn't my choice to put turn left in the book. It was somebody else's choice, John Davies, and he's writing about it. Right. So you'll find out why when you when you read the book. <laughs> but well, um, but I'm just giving you that as an example of some of the story. I wanted to put Genesis of the Daleks in. Oh, now that would be controversial. Yeah, it would. But I again, it's a case of it's a story that I don't think is necessarily what it gets painted as it's painted as the classic dalek story and i don't think it's by any stretch of the imagination the classic dalek story it's the classic davros story but that's a different thing entirely Mm. so i thought there was a case for putting genesis of the daleks in there but in the end nobody would take it (laughs) (laughs) now you mentioned one of the contributors a moment ago Who, who are the other contributors who have put this book together with you um, well, there's ten of us all together. Right, I'm going to have to do this by memory, so I'm hoping I don't forget any names. But the first two that went into the hat were Christopher Bryant and John Davis, because they've both edited other books for Watching Books. Mm-hmm. And John Arnold is also in there, and he's currently doing the Bowie book for us. Ah, oh, okay. That is going ahead, is it? Yeah, so that'll come out later this year. So other than John Arnold, we've also got Al No. Yes, know him well. Yeah, and his essays are always fascinating, and they're also always very, very idiosyncratic. Yes. And I wanted to see, because I thought there was room in this book for a bit of experimentation with the authors, so I thought if I get Al Noen and try and get him to write the kind of essay he doesn't normally write, then he might come up with something even more interesting than what he usually does. Okay. So Al Noen's in there. Um, Beth Ward's in there. Yes got brendan jones from flight through entirety because i mean you must have heard that podcast oh of course yeah and in brendan jones i kind of you know listening to flight through entirety i kind of thought he's a bit of a kindred spirit so (laughs) and he'd written for you and who so i thought let's have him and then there's a bunch of authors who had always been really good with you and who dropping in essays at the last minute when something else fell through you know, basically stepping up and helping out. So I've got people like Nicholas Hollands and um, Michael Collins, and they've always written great things for you and who, so it was good to have them on too. 
Just trying to think now if there's anybody I've forgotten. I don't think so. I think that's all ten of us. Oh, Tony Green. Tony Green, his essays for you and who were always spectacular. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he was a... He, he write, he's the kind of a uh, writer who gives a real personal angle on something, but also covers all the bases at the same time. So he says all the things you want him to say, but he says it in such a way that he absolutely paints a picture of what he's thinking. And his essays in this are great. In fact, all the essays in this are great, although I'm still waiting for a few, so this book isn't going to be out quite as soon as I was hoping it would be. But, you know, it's ready when it's ready, and it should be, it should be ready in the next few weeks, with fingers crossed. <laughs> so maybe by the time this podcast is going out, actually. With a bit of luck, although I suspect it's probably more likely to be late April, I would say, probably. Ah, okay, no problem. Yeah. Well... We were talking about some of the submissions a moment ago. Was there a piece in the book that really surprised you when it came in, and why? Oh, grief. Um, do you know, Beth's... I was saying just now, Beth Ward's, her essays, all of them have surprised me in a way. And she's still got a couple to um, submit, but one of them, the one on Megloss, I think is a bit surprising. Can you say why without giving anything away? <laughs> um, only insofar as... She looks at things through a complete, you know, from a completely different angle from the one you'd expect. So her essay on Megloss has got nothing really to do with the cheapness of it and nothing really, from what I've seen of it, because she hasn't actually submitted it yet. She just sent me a sort of first draft. But it, it doesn't look at Megloss in any of the ways that you might expect it to if you just look at Megloss and say oh it's a cheap one and it doesn't really fit in with the rest of that season she actually goes in depth into how stories work so her essays she's got another one on the curse of the black spot that basically gives it a bit of a kicking well there's a story I think should be in the book (laughs) personally well do you know what though I like it really yeah I don't dislike it at all but she always looks at things from an angle of does the story work on a sort of fundamental level mm-hmm. rather than just does it look cheap and nasty, which I think is the problem with you know, a lot of the Doctor Who stories that kind of end up at the bottom of these piles. Something like Warriors of the Deep, as a story, as a script, it kind of works. Yeah, yeah. But it's just how it looks on screen that kind of does for it, really. Yeah, exactly. And so there's quite a few essays that you know bring up that kind of thing but what i tried to do what i tried to tell the authors to do was instead of just taking one of the stories that's ended up at the bottom of the poles and you know has always gone down in sort of fan history as a story that doesn't work i said to them look try and forget all the usual things the fact that the you know the budget wasn't up to the job it was more ambitious than the budget could cope with and try and examine the story you know in terms of it being a story rather than it being an episode of a television series that doesn't have enough money to cover all the special effects it should have had i tried to get them to look at these things on a more fundamental level Mm. and one of the big things going into this book like i say when i first had the idea which must have been over a year ago i think it was going to be all about the context So something like The Twin Dilemma, the essay was going to be more about the context of how the story was made and how the other stories around it were made and what it was 
in the twin dilemma that went wrong, that didn't go wrong in those other stories, that made the twin dilemma the one that sticks out as not working very well. So I asked everybody with their essays, instead of just writing about the story, to actually write about the people making the story, where it fits in the season, the other stories that were being made around it, in order to give some context to how or why that story has a reputation. I was going to say that twin dilemma example would be quite unique because you'd be largely talking about a, a whole different doctor for, for some of it if you're talking about the stories around it or the season it's made in. Yeah, but also what comes afterwards sometimes, although not necessarily. Mm. But yeah, in the season. And actually, you know, not everybody's taking this on board, so all of the essays aren't quite like this. And the, the other thing was, I said to everybody, it's fine if you look at the story and say it is bad. Mm. You know, mm. on, a, on a sort of a fairly objective level, it doesn't work. I said, it's fine if you reappraise the story and find it still doesn't work. This doesn't have to be a book with a bunch of essays in saying, actually, this story is better than you think it is. Although it's kind of mostly turned into a book which says (laughs) all these stories are better than you think they are. But then, you know, in a funny way, that's a good book to have because it could send people back to their DVDs, these 50-odd stories, to take a second look and to think to themselves, okay, yeah, I can see what they were talking about. I can see what the people making this episode, this story, were going for, and I can see where it fails, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is failed on every level. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these stories just fail on one level, and they're working on all sorts of other levels. Well, I think that's a nice segue into... You mentioned that Beth's piece does give uh, Curse of the Black Spot a, a kicking, so it sounds like it does conclude that it's bad. You don't think that yeah. it's bad. You said there's a conversation to be had here. Why don't we go down that path for a moment? Oh, well, I, yeah, no, I was just going to say... Well, it's kind of what I've just been saying. You know, I said to Beth, like I said to everybody else, if you find that, you know, you reappraise something and you think it has fundamental problems, say so. And I think her last... I'm not giving too much away by saying this. I think her last paragraph in, on The Curse of the Black Spot, after she spent about 15 paragraphs giving it a bit of a kicking, says, and actually, on a simple entertainment level, it kind of works, as long as you ignore everything else that's wrong with it. And, you know, that, I think that's the case. Because, like I say, I actually find that story absolutely fine. I can see that it has certain problems. But this goes back to what I was saying about me not looking at the program through a fan's eyes Hmm. you know my earliest memory is planet of the daleks and other than a few speeches at the end from john pertwee about what it means to be brave planet of the daleks doesn't really say anything it's not like a malcolm hulk story that has a lot to say about politics and Hmm. social politics it's a story that is just there to be an adventure and i think growing up with, you know, the Target books and my favourites of the Target books were Planet of the Daleks and Death of the Daleks and things like that and the Robert Holmes Auton stories. Growing up with those stories, I was always happy for Doctor Who not to have something to say, just to entertain for four episodes or six episodes. Hmm. And I think as a grown-up, you tend to look at Doctor Who and you tend to think that if it's not saying something, it's failing. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And I think one of the things that this book addresses is that, you know, it's fine for stories just to be there to entertain for a few episodes, for a few weeks. You know, as long as 
you don't go for whole stretches of the series where it has absolutely nothing to say at all. Mind you, even saying that, if you look at the sort of Philip Hinchcliffe, Robert Holmes era, you've got three seasons that don't really say anything at all, and they're regarded as the best three seasons the series has ever had. Very true. So, <laughs> so what can you say? You know, one man's meat is another man's potatoes. It's all swings and roundabouts, and there's me <laughs> mixing metaphors. But you know, it's what you what you take out of it. Uh, it's always been the case that. As a grown-up, because as a kid, you're quite happy to accept a lot of things. Mm. I think as a grown-up, you end up looking for certain things. I think and so. Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes those things are to have episodes that mean something. And sometimes it's to have an episode that works on an emotional level, especially these days in the new series, that works on a character level. Sometimes it's to have a story that, while it doesn't necessarily mean something in the sort of wider political sense or whatever sometimes it's to have a story that works on different layers where those layers tie together where you feel kind of a sense of satisfaction at the end i think that's where the curse of the black spot doesn't really work i don't think it satisfies at the end i find it very entertaining but it's it's not entirely satisfying and i think that's what beth gets out in the essay okay well we were talking about pieces that surprised you and speaking of surprised do any of the episodes in the book surprise you because you think, oh, hang on, I, I quite like that one. You know, when you were sitting down with the group, did, did one come up and you may be fighting against it, perhaps, from being in the book? Well, on the subject of that, there may be a secret chapter at the end of the book. Oh. Uh, yeah, where we actually, each of us, um, not necessarily all of us, actually, because I think this is down to who's got time to join in and do it. And who's actually got the wherewithal to join in, in and do it. But this won't be in the contents page, but there is going to be a chapter at the end of the book where each one of us picks a classic story and looks at it from the opposite angle and says, is a classic story a classic because it's fundamentally, objectively better? Or is it just because where it sits in the series, it sticks out? Caves of Androzani, for instance... I mean, this is my own personal opinion, but I don't think Caves of Androzani is a particularly good Doctor Who story. Mm. I think it's a great piece of television, but I think as a piece of Doctor Who, it doesn't really work. But I think because it's head and shoulders above everything else, you know, in the period of across about maybe five years, Mm -hmm. I think it has a reputation that outstrips its actual value. So Caves of Androzani is in there. Not me writing about that one, funnily enough. But what we're doing is we're going to ask the question, does this story really deserve its reputation? And then look at the story and try and answer that. Okay. And earlier you mentioned, you know, perhaps you would have liked to have seen Genesis of the Daleks in there. I mean, that... Uh, is that but when a... I said it's not in there, it's not on the contents page, but it is going to be in the secret chapter. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's an exclusive, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just getting back to the main question, though, I'm putting aside the secret chapter. Is is there anything that, you know, got in and you thought, oh, I wish it hadn't because I like it? There are lots of ones in there because of the way we did it, where we said we're going to have a story from every season. And sometimes the story that we pick is going to be the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. Well, not even like a sore thumb, just the one that sticks out a bit rather yeah. than the one that's bad necessarily. So there are things in there like the three doctors and the deadly assassin which like turn left we've picked for the book not because they have necessarily a bad reputation but because they're so different from what's around them 
that writing about them kind of illustrates something about what's around them. Right, okay. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So some of the essays attack things from those angles. And then there are other seasons where there isn't a bad story. Do you know what I mean? Season seven, for example. Mm, Obviously, we had to... If if we were going to do a story from every season, we had to do a story from season seven. And patently, out of those four stories, it was going to be the Ambassadors of Death. So the Ambassadors of Death's in there. But, I mean, nobody's going to argue that the Ambassadors of Death isn't a good story. But hopefully the essay on Ambassadors of Death sort of addresses why, in some ways, that one doesn't do quite as well as the other three stories in that season. And, you know, there are a bunch of essays like that which have picked a story out that's not necessarily a bad story, but that just doesn't quite work as well as what's around it. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. It's, it's leading me to wonder what you might have written for the book. What, what stories have you tackled, can you say? Oh, I'll tell you my six, if you like, Please. if I can remember them off the top of my head. <laughs> well, one of them is The Enemy of the World, Okay. Well, the way it worked when we were choosing, what we did was, first of all, all of us sat and went through the stories and picked one, which ones we would um, cover. And then the following day, we went back in. And, you know, the way I did it was I got everybody to email me their choices in secret. And then I allocated backwards, trying to make sure everybody got what they wanted. Right. Because there were some stories where three people would put their name down for it. Yeah. But I made sure everybody in the book was writing about things they wanted to write about and nobody got stuck with something they didn't. Mm-hmm. So although some people didn't necessarily get their first choice, if they didn't get their first choice, they got their second, third, fourth and fifth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I ended up being um, the editor of the book. I kind of put myself aside from that process and said... I said to myself, look, originally you were going to do this whole thing, so you're going to write about everything, so it doesn't really matter what you end up with. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, well, so I've ended up writing about a few things that I wouldn't have chosen because they're things that I've written about already. Right, okay. So The Enemy of the World, I did quite a lengthy review of that when it came back on, um, you know, in 2013. And I've ended up writing about that again. So I've ended up writing about not the story, but I've ended up writing entirely about its reputation. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably the angle there, isn't it? Because it was missing for yeah. so long and it built up this reputation as being a thing. And then when you well, actually it, see it... Was, it yeah, there was complete indifference towards it pretty much before it came back. And since it, became, and since it came back, everybody you know, seems to have jumped on the, oh, this was a lost classic mm. sort of bandwagon. Whereas I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think it's always been a fascinating story because of the two Troutons thing. It was always the story I most wanted to see of all the ones that were missing. It was always top of my list because of the two Troutons. But by the same token, although it's fascinating for that, I think the story itself ain't really all that great shakes. Mm. You know, especially when you get into the last two episodes and there's this, you know, very James Bond secret base underground and, you know, it transpires what's been going on. I don't think it really adds up all that well. So I think, although it's a very good story, it's certainly not a classic. So I think the way its reputation has gone from one extreme to the other is quite a fascinating topic for an essay by itself. Yeah, I was going to say, part of that reputation is, is not just the story, but I think Troughton himself. I, yes. He's always been relatively popular as a doctor, but it seems in the last decade or two... He's become the governor. He's become the doctor for a lot of people when it comes yeah, to the yeah. classic era. And it, it never, 
I can't remember it being that way back in the 80s when I first got into fandom. I, as I say, he was always popular, but he, he, not to the degree he is today. I wonder if that's because during the 90s, during the 80s, you only had, gosh, was it four complete, might even have been three complete stories. So by the end of the decade, when things were coming out on video and things were being shown on, um, on the satellite television channels over here, and of course in America and Australia... You wouldn't show a story that wasn't complete. So I think people only had about three stories to go on. Yeah, it wasn't many. So I think, yeah, so I think as you get into the 90s and more of his episodes start coming back, I think that's when, that's perhaps when people start to say, oh, hang on, look at what's going on here with this chap. And to be honest, you look at the enemy of the world and you look at his performance and you think that is as astonishing, in fact, more so than his performances in any of his other stories would be if we had those back Mm. but you know what other than the fact that he's also playing salamander i think any of his other stories that were to come back you'd see him giving just as good a performance if all of his stories had always existed the performance that he gives across his entire tenure would basically be more or less on a level you'd love it from start to finish I think the reason why the enemy of the world is currently so vaunted is because it's the most recent. So it's the one where actually being able to watch his performance is at its freshest. So I think his performance in that gets elevated in people's minds above all those other stories, even though in all those other stories he gives just as good a performance. And obviously you also have the salamander thing as well, which, like I say, is the reason why that was always top of my list for ones I wanted to see come back. But beyond the salamander thing he is just that good an actor and i'm sure he is that good an actor in you know whatever it might be whether it's the space pirates or whether it's fury from the deep and when we got the second episode of uh, the underwater menace back you know it's exactly the same thing that story got reappraised because all of a sudden you had an extra try 25 minutes of patrick troughton to mm, look at exactly all right your second piece in the book um, Planet of the Daleks. Um. <laughs> Again, I've written about this before. It was, like I say, my earliest proper Doctor Who memory. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's always said about that is that it's um, basically a remake of the Daleks. I don't think actually it's a remake so much as it takes some of the elements and plays a new game with them. Right, yeah. But by the same token, even if it was a remake, I wouldn't have a problem with that either. Especially given the context. Like I say, a lot of this book is all about the context. When Planet of the Daleks came on the telly, Daleks hadn't been seen on telly for ten years. And the novelization of the Daleks had been out of print for eight years. And the film of the Daleks had been and gone in the cinemas, you know, eight or nine years ago. Mm -hmm. So by the time Planet of the Daleks came on, any eight-year-olds or six-year-olds or even ten-year-olds who were watching it probably wouldn't know the original Dalek story at all, let alone well enough to be able to point at Planet of the Daleks and say, oh, you know, that's a bit of a remake. So yeah. from that perspective... I was going to say, the original viewers had come and gone, the ones who were kids back yeah. watching the, yeah, the original. and Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So I think from that perspective, much like with the new Star Wars film, I've not seen it yet, but I keep hearing that either it's a remake or else it takes the same elements as the original. And I keep thinking to myself, that's fine, because, you know, the 10-year-olds are going to see that in the cinema now. Although they might know the other Star Wars films from having seen them on the telly, to go to the cinema and see the new Star Wars film is going to be an entirely different experience for them, so let them have it. 
Oh yeah, and even for me as a you know just to go off on a, a tangent, you know I, I'm a big Star Wars fan, have been since yeah. I was a kid. It still didn't even bother me, you know, the fact that there's a droid and he's carrying a secret message, and you know, you know, there, there oh, really are a, stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's the same as Star Wars, but it's done in a different way, and it's on different planets, and it has different characters, and you know, it, it's and just you know, the same story repeating, which is a, a, a theme in literature, I guess. I was going to say, you know, when people point at things and say, oh, that's a remake, or he's, or when, you know, this happens with Stephen Moffat all the time, they say, oh, he's reusing something. And I'm like, he's a writer. Writers have themes in their work. And if he's reusing something, that's not because he's run out of inspiration, but that's because that's something that interests him, that he mm-hmm. likes to come back to. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's how it works. And Star Wars, you know, two of the three original Star Wars films have got lengthy sequences where somebody's being educated in the ways of being a Jedi. Yes. Um, Not necessarily so much in the first one, but, you know, that's part of the plot when Luke Skywalker finds Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first one, isn't it? Obi-Wan is supposed to teach him in the ways of being a Jedi. And then Yoda takes that over in the second movie. The first and the third movies both end up with big, great big Death Stars and a big sequence where they try to blow it up. These are just the themes of the films. And the new film has its own Death Star-like thing in it. <laughs> yeah. At that, again, that's the theme of Star Wars. It's, it wouldn't be a Star Wars movie if it didn't have stuff from the original Star Wars movies. Those, that's the universe that Star Wars takes place in. Those are the things that happen. Well, coming back to Planet of the Daleks and, it, and its context, did you, did you cover the Target novel at all in what you were saying? Uh, not really, because although that was the very first Target novel I ever bought, I don't think it's actually a very good one. <laughs> but I'll tell you what my other angle on Planet of the Daleks was, um, which I'm not sure if I've spoken about before. I th- may have. Two years after Planet of the Daleks, Barry Letts famously said to Terry Nation, you've written this story for us twice already. Can you find some new way of doing it? <laughs> and Terry Nation gave them Davros. And the thing that people always remember about Davros in, the, uh, Gen- in Genesis of the Daleks is all the speeches. If you look at Planet of the Daleks, it has just as many speeches that are pretty much as good, but on a very slightly different subject. Uh, you know, the sort of speeches that John Pertwee gives about bravery and such. Yeah. It's not a million miles away from what he's doing with Davros in Genesis, other than the fact that it is Davros in Genesis, so he can talk about the Daleks being born as opposed to what the Daleks have become, which is what they're talking about in Planet of the Daleks. It strikes me that those are two different sides of the same coin, and there's not really that much to split between them. They both even share a director, and you know some of the stuff that David Maloney does in Planet of the Daleks is pretty good, considering that it's basically a gigantic alien planet that's all jungle done in a tiny little tv studio so part of my angle on planet of the daleks is is this actually that much worse than genesis of the daleks or do the two stories share a rather a lot more than fandom would seem to think interesting all right number three um delta and the bannermen Ooh. now there's one i'm not fond of I get that reaction so many times, and I sort of understand it, but I think Delta and the Bannermen is an absolutely lovely story. This is Andrew Cartmel's first series in Doctor Who. He's only doing three stories in this series, and although he has an idea about what he wants to do, 
you know, famously the graphic novel thing. Mm. He doesn't yet quite know how that's going to translate into the series itself. So if you look at Paradise Towers, Delta and the Bannermen, and Dragonfire, what you basically have is three different pilots for what Doctor Who will become. And if you look at the second series, you've got Remembrance, which is kind of more in the Dragonfire ilk. Yeah. And you have Happiness Patrol and Greatest Show, which are more in the Paradise Towers ilk. Mm-hmm. And you have Silver Nemesis, which is kind of more like Dragonfire, but has shades of Delta and the Bannermen. And then if you go to the third series, Battlefield through to Survival, he's pretty much settled on the sort of dragons, Dragonfire template. Yeah. So the sort of left field sort of, what was the word that they used for those? The uh, slightly oddball ones, the oddball stories. Yeah. By the time you get to season 26, the oddball ones have pretty much gone out the window. But Delta and the Bannermen, I don't think is either oddball or sort of neo-traditional. I think Delta and the Bannermen is something else entirely. I think it's a really lyrical way of looking at Doctor Who. It's like, a, how can I put this? It's kind of a, it's almost like a rustic doctor who story it's almost like what doctor who would be if you took all the tech out of it there's two aliens chasing each other on planet earth just like you had in say the 11th hour for example where you've got you know the eye in the sky chasing after the snake thing that hangs down from the ceiling mm-hmm. whatever there's been a bunch of stories like that delta and the bannermen you've got that but that is so far in the background it's got all this other stuff on top It seems to be saying to me, let's take the idea for a Doctor Who story and let's build something entirely different out of those building blocks. And I think what it comes up with is kind of lovely in the way that things like Dad's Army are lovely. I think Delta and the Bannermen is the Dad's Army of Doctor Who. (laughs) Because Dad's Army, essentially, if you were to say to somebody who'd never seen it, this is what this series is about, they'd think, oh, it's a war story. But actually, you watch Dad's Army, and it's not a war story at all. The war is so deep in the background of Dad's Army that some, there are some episodes of Dad's Army where you, you don't even think to yourself, oh, this is taking place during the war. It's about the characters. It's mm. about the situations they get into. It's about, you know, the silly things that happen. Delta and the Bannermen is a Doctor Who story where the Doctor Who is so far in the background. It's about the characters. It's about the situations and the silly things that happen. I think it's a lovely story. I think it sits apart from Doctor Who. So maybe it's not a very good Doctor Who story, which is why, obviously, it's in this book. But I think if you can look at it through unjaded eyes and just accept it for what it's doing, I think it's almost poetical in the way it looks at Doctor Who and says, right, this is what Doctor Who can do, rather than this being what Doctor Who should do. Very interesting. I, I think that'll be an interesting essay to read. Yeah, uh, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're up to number four. Um, the TV movie. I've done the TV movie. Okay. Again, this is one that I've written about before, so I didn't necessarily want to, but, you know, it was one of the ones I was left with, so I was quite happy to do it. Look, the TV movie was supposed to reinvent Doctor Who for an entirely brand new audience who never heard of Doctor Who before. Yes. You know, as much as there were Doctor Who fans in America prior to the TV movie, this wasn't aimed at them. This was aimed at the people who'd never heard of Doctor Who. And, and so, yet it starts with, I'm a Time Lord and my enemy's the exactly. Master and I've been to Scaro and, and uh, I'm on this regeneration. <laughs> it's like, What? <laughs> 
my contention with the TV movie is that you, if you strip out everything up to the moment where the TARDIS lands in the middle of a sort of gangland heist sequence, uh, mm-hmm. um, a robbery, whatever it is, if you strip out everything that happens before then, you understand what's going on just as well as you would have done if you had all the explanations at the start, but you've taken out of it everything that would put off an audience who'd never seen the series before. Yeah. I think if you watch those first five minutes and you've never heard of Doctor Who, it's lost you and you don't care. I think if you start that movie, that TV movie, with you know a, a sort of gangland sort of robbery taking place, a street robbery taking place, and all of a sudden this big blue box appears out of nowhere, and then this guy steps out of it, and they shoot him, and instead of dying, he turns into somebody else. I think you've got your casual audience absolutely hooked, wanting to find out what's going on. Instead... You have this ridiculously stupid sequence at the start of the film where there's a guy sitting in this great big cathedral-type space that you don't even know is supposed to be inside this blue box mm. telling you what's going on. Yeah, It makes no sense. Yeah, because I think what you're suggesting is more show, don't tell, which I would agree with as well. Yeah, and I think the TV movie actually inspire the fact that everybody says it tells rather than showing. I think after those first five minutes, it does a grand job of showing rather than telling. Mm. It's just that those five minutes have told you everything it's going to show you before it actually does. I was going to so, say, do you happen to cover McGann's wig at all? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were... The, the essays in this book could have been 10,000 words each if you were going to go into everything. So mm, I think true. each one of them basically basically chooses an angle and runs with that angle for a couple of thousand words. So, yeah. So that's my angle on the TV movie. And my basic contention with that is drop the first five minutes. And actually, it's a really good piece of television. That's right. Which I think brings us to number five. Which is the time of the Doctor, which again is something that I've written about. But again, that was something I was kind of left with. And, you know, I think time of the Doctor, much like what I said about Delta and the Bannerman, I think time of the Doctor works almost you know against the rest of doctor who works almost the same way as a poem works against a prose i I think it's an entirely different thing that people weren't expecting and i think the reason why it has a bad reputation is because it's not what people were expecting rather than because it's not very good i think the time of the doctor is actually a wonderful piece of doctor who i think it's just that people were expecting the 11th doctor to have an explosive climax but he'd already had his explosive climax in the day of the Doctor, and this is kind of the lyrical epilogue to his mm. period as the Doctor instead, and that's not what people were expecting. Do you know what? When Russell T. Davis did The End of Time, he talked about doing a quiet story where the Doctor, instead of saving the entire universe, just saves some people on a spaceship or a single planet or whatever, and he's just involved with a very few people, and it's a very quiet story, and he, he just saves a very few people, and at the end of it, it's that small thing, that small sacrifice he makes that oh, causes him to change. That's right. It was going to be a family who had broken down in a car or something. Like a, well, on a, a spaceship. Space, a a space was, car, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And he got radiation poisoning from the engine. I'm, I'm vaguely remembering that. And then, in the end, he decided to do the most over-the-top Doctor Who story ever, <laughs> because it was Tennant's last. 
And you know what? People bemoaned the fact that he hadn't done that because that would, in a way, have reminded them of the Caves of Androzani, where it's mm. a small sacrifice rather than saving the entire universe that causes the regeneration. Yeah. Time of the Doctor is essentially the story that everybody wanted when they got the end of time. Mm. It's a, a small story with the Doctor saving a small town on a small planet and it's not the universe that's at stake. It's just, you know, a few people in this tiny little community. And you don't get to meet many of them. You don't get, you know, you, because it's Stephen Moffat doing, a, you know, one of his end of season type things. It's not end of season, but you know what I mean? He's, yeah. When he does his finales, he tends to throw in cameos for a bunch of monsters because he'll tend to be telling a more intimate story. And I think he feels that in order that the kids, you know, the six-year-olds and the eight-year-olds are satisfied. So we'll throw in Sontarans and a Daleks and, you know, a Cyberman, wooden Cyberman. That kind of says it all about this story. The Cyberman turns up and it's made of wood. Mm. And isn't that stupid and wonderful and unexpected and delightful and just beautifully inappropriate? And that's what the story is. It's stupid and wonderful, delightful, inappropriate, and just lyrical and gorgeous. I think Time of the Doctor is a gorgeous story. But I don't think it's what people expected, and I think that's why it has a reputation that fails to live up to what the story's real value truly is. Yeah, I think so. All right, moving on to the last one now. Yeah, the last one, I, I was only going to do five because I'd also done the introduction, which is just the same length as all the other essays. But then, because this book's taken slightly longer than we intended, this book was going to come out last autumn, but you and who else turned into such a huge book mm. that in the end, this had to get put off for a few months while I A, finished that other one, and B, recovered. So this has <laughs> come out a bit later than intended. So actually, it suddenly struck me we should add in a story from Series 9. So I'll let you guess which story I picked from Series 9 to write about. From Series 9? A story people disliked from Series 9. This is hard because I quite liked a lot of Series 9. I liked a lot of Series 9 better than Series 8. Yeah. But, oh, uh, I can... But there's I, one that sticks out. Oh, if I had to guess, it's one of the Ashilda stories, perhaps? No, it's Sleep No More. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so bad you'd forgotten it was even there. I know, because that's the one that I don't like in the series, and I'd f I had forgotten about it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt exactly the same way. So I spend eight pages going over everything Mark Gatiss has written for Doctor Who, saying, how did he come to the point where he wrote something like Sleep No More? And how did it come to the point where something like Sleep No More is stuck in the middle of a series that otherwise is entirely consistent all the way through? And so that's my angle on Sleep No More. Well, very interesting. Now, all along we've been talking about you and who. It's been peppered all through this conversation, but we haven't yeah. really gotten into it. Now, I'll just say up front, you know, for reasons of uh, a full disclaimer, I am in the first you and who book. I'm in You and Who Contact Has Been Made, both volumes, and I am in You and Who Else. So I have written for these books. Oh, yeah. So I, I am fond of the concept. Um, and you were on my shortlist for this book, except the shortlist was about 50 names long. I bet it was, because there are a lot <laughs> yeah. of people involved in the You and Who books. It's kind of become I'm not a family business and not a cottage industry, but you know what? There are a lot of regular people who love the concept so much they can keep coming back to it time after time. That's and right. some people fall away and some new people come. So you always have a turnover of people, but with a lot of regular names. Now, that concept for the people at home, 
Well, would you like to, to tell us about it? Maybe how it came to be. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'll try and give you the concept in a sentence. These are books about not necessarily always Doctor Who, because obviously I've done one just on British telefantasy in general, and there's one on Blake Seven, and there are going to be others, mm-hmm. one on David Bowie. The concept is kind of you write about the thing that you've watched, but rather than writing about the thing that you've watched, you write about watching it. So it's an autobiographical description of the place you were in when you watched it than it is about the actual thing that you watched. It's not a review of the episode or the series or the book or the concert or the record or whatever. It's not a review. It's a sort of description of what you were doing Mm -hmm. and what things were going on in your life that made you connect with whatever it is that's the subject of your essay in such a way that it's become so important to you. So if you're writing about, for instance, you know, a particular Doctor Who story, you won't be saying, oh, I like this Doctor Who story because it's really good. You wouldn't necessarily pick one that was really good, but you might pick one because it was the first one you saw. And that's a really obvious way to go about it. Mm. But a lot of people have picked ones that were important to them for other reasons there's one of the essays in contact has been made where somebody talks about his video collection and this chap sort of fell upon hard times and the one thing that became a sort of touchstone for him was his vhs collection that was in the basement at his parents house and when he was going through all sorts of struggles and troubles he keeps talking about coming back and sort of paying a visit on his parents and you know the thing that would keep him happy is being able to go down to the basement and see that VHS collection and just pull a story out and stick it in the video machine Mm. and watch the story and forget about all his troubles for a couple of hours. And so he writes an essay about the story that he remembers pulling out and sticking on the video player. That's what these essays are really about. They're about the people rather than the stories. Yeah, and, and that's what fascinated me about the concept because reviews are a dime a dozen you know, we've also had stuff like the discontinuity guide that Paul Cornell did in the 90s with some other blokes, which sort yeah. of took it in a slightly different direction and covered things like, you know, fluffs that might be made in episodes and yeah. you know, bits of continuity and so on. And that's that's fun too, but that's being done as well. This is yeah. something completely new and different and you get to sort of know people and, and hear a little bit of their life, a little slice of their life in these stories. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, everything else that's ever been written about the series has been already written. There's nothing new, really, to write about the series. And although when I write, um, you know, a review or anything, I try and find an angle that I don't think's been done before. Undoubtedly, it's just that I've never read it before. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when I came to doing the You and Who books, the inspiration for them, because this was before I was writing for Starburst magazine, do you, remember, do you buy Doctor Who magazine? I do, yeah. Do you remember the specials that were doing the catching up, the special editions that were doing the catching up on the old archives? Yes. Where the additional information, and because it was just essentially information in those magazines, what they also did was got a bunch of people who'd written for the novels and for Big Finish and occasionally for the telly to write short essays about each of the stories so that there was something in there that wasn't just information and facts something new yeah and those essays were basically the professionals writing the same sort of thing that's turned up in you and who they were writing short personal histories about the program and it struck me 
what Doctor Who magazine should have done next is do a whole special entirely of people writing personal histories of the programme, but instead of it being professional people, to get the readers of the magazine yeah. to submit essays. And I th- in fact, I even essay- emailed the magazine themselves and suggested it and never heard back, mm. probably because it would have been such hard work to get done. Yeah. So instead, I just turned around and said, right, I'll do it myself. And when you did it yourself, initially it was with a publisher, yes? Yeah. Well, there's a bit of a story there. I went on the forums and said, look, I've had this idea for this book, and this is basically what it covers. And I'd also bought Desperately Seeking Susan Foreman. Do you remember? Which had been self-published. I do, yes. And I thought, well, if this is what the modern day can achieve, where you can self-publish, and although it doesn't look quite as good as a book that's published by a proper publisher, it's not so far off that it really makes a big difference. I thought, I'll just self-publish. So I, I put out on you know various forums this is my idea this is what i want to do and i was thinking i'll self-publish and within a day i had an essay from stuart humphreys also known as babel color who had obviously connected with the idea so much that he just sat down that very afternoon and written the essay and i also had an offer from hearst he hadn't offered quite to publish it straight away because obviously i don't think he wanted to put his money where his mouth was until he'd read it but basically Mm. offered to help with publishing it as it transpired because the guys at milk had seen the post and said to tim who had been publishing their books at that time this looks like a really good idea you should see if you can get something to do with this so when it all fell through with hearst milk were the obvious ones to step in and say look we'll just publish it instead because you know it was those guys who'd noticed it in the first place so you and who and then you and who contact has been made both came out with milk but then milk um since those two books have come out they've kind of changed what they're doing rather they're more into biographies and um books from the professionals these days i think they also opened a shop front as well yeah they've also opened a shop so yeah. the thing about milk is the you and who books much as i think they enjoyed having them they don't really fit in with their profile anymore Mm. And rather than try and find somebody else to do it, or rather than try and persuade Milk, no, this should be part of your profile, I just thought this is modern day now. Rather than having books that are going to go out of print when these... Because we're talking small press publishing. We're talking, you know, not many hundreds of copies. Yeah, They're not going to print up a thousand copies and have, you know, 700 copies sitting in a room somewhere waiting to be sold. And by the same token, if they print up 300 copies and they run out of 300 copies and they're selling maybe three a year they're not going to print up another hundred to cope with the demand for three a year exactly so when they go out of print they're out of print and that's it the end of the story and the three you and who books the two volumes of contact and the original one they'd all gone out of print Hmm. i just thought modern day and age you use a print to order service and you just publish them yourself yeah. And initially, watching books, because I, I formed this thing called Watching Books because I knew that if you went on an author's page on Amazon, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see all the you and who books there. Because, for example, Christopher Bryan's name is on one of the volumes of Contact Has Been Made. So if you search for me, you wouldn't get Contact Has Been Made Volume 2. Mm. So I thought, right, you need a place to sort of centralize all this so people can find everything. So I created this thing. I called it Watching Books. And it's basically just a little website where you can go and you can find all these books. 
And so originally that was formed just to reprint the ones that already existed, but I already had an idea in mind for a third book that I wanted to do, which is You and Who Else? Because I, my own trajectory, I thought each book should be bigger. The idea should be bigger. So the first You and Who is just general essays about Doctor Who, because I didn't have the confidence nor the profile to get essays on every story for the first book. Yeah. So the first book is just essays on Doctor Who. The second one is an essay about every single story and a load of spin-off stuff as well. The third one, I thought, you've got to go bigger than that. So it's the whole of British telefantasy. And sometime later this year, I'm planning to start work on the whole of British cult film. Ooh. So my trajectory is that each book I do should be bigger in some way than the last. Not necessarily a bigger book, but a bigger idea. And well, then I think that's where my own trajectory will stop. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you may say not a bigger book, but I can see those books from where I'm sitting. They're, they're laying on their sides at the moment. And, the, and first, the first book is about half the size of one volume of Contact. And if, with, if I put both volumes of Contact together, they're about the same thickness as you and who else. So, yeah. So, so they are actually, yeah, they are actually turning into bigger books, but that wasn't necessarily the idea. It was just the idea of behind the book, the, con- the concept for each book had to be bigger. Because it's always been, you know, it's always been something with me that I think if you do another thing that's like something you've done before, in some ways you have to better what you did before. Mm, yes. Rather than just doing, you know, the same again or whatever. So although I... Um, think it's really nice that we're also doing books like um, Chris Bryant's currently doing the Target books and John Davis did the Blake 7 book so although I think it's great and it's proper and it's right that we're doing these kinds of things on a personal level that's something that I wouldn't necessarily have an interest in doing myself mm. so it's nice that we're spreading out now again just looking at you and who else it, it is the size of a small brick <laughs> certainly it can't double in size but uh, I don't think no. it needs to. I think this size, there is just so much. I'm flicking through it now. There's so much in there from so many different people and so many different things. You can't it's not real... flick to a random page and find something yeah. amazing. It's a real dipper in actually, isn't it? Yeah. That's how I, I treat don't... them. Yeah, I don't think you could really read these things cover to cover. Certainly not now, not with you and who else. You probably could with the Doctor Who ones, but no, not with you and who else. I don't think you could. And I suppose one of the ways you could criticise it is saying there's too much in there and you should cut out the flab and just leave the important stuff. But this is one of the joys of self-publishing is that you can just say, look, no, it is the size it is. It covers what it covers and it has all these essays in by all these different people. If somebody's enthused enough to want to write for it, then unless what they write is absolute drivel, I I think there's a place for them in there. And uh, the thing about all these essays is... And I think this is true, even if they're talking about stuff that hasn't happened to you, I think the emotional connection is going to pretty much connect with anybody who's going to read the book. So even if they're writing about a series you've never seen, and they're writing about it in terms that don't relate to your life, I think on an emotional level, what they're writing will connect with you in in that way. I was about to say the same thing. Um even in terms of where it's not a series I've seen, but the way they're reacting to it is how I've reacted to another series. It's like, oh, I, I, yeah. get, I get that exactly. And then it makes me curious to go and watch that series because I think, well, if they like it like that, oh, maybe maybe it's worth my time, you know? So it's useful in that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Coming back to, to 
going with a publisher or being self-published, are there pros and cons to either that you've, you've come across? Oh, being with a publisher gets you a much higher profile and you'll sell a lot more copies. Simple as that. Okay. But being self-published, you know, the pros of that is it stays in print and that's a big thing. And you get to, you get to be in control of how much money you make and where it goes. I mean, not that I'm saying I've ever had any problems with that. Obviously, Milk, uh, absolutely fastidious about those things. But you know what I mean? I, could cho- I can choose the charity that gets to um, benefit from these books. And the way it works is slightly different now from the way it worked before. But you get to be in charge of that. And you get to set the pricing structure. So you get to, you get to be in charge and you get to make sure that everything runs the way you want it to run. Because this is, I mean, Milk were uh, exceptionally good about the two You and Who books that they did. You know, You and Who and Contact has been made. But another publisher might well have said to me, you and who else, you know, strip it of half of its page count. Mm, exactly. And I, would have, and I would have said, you know, stripping it of half of its page count, you might be able to then bump up the price so the charity gets an extra 50p per copy that's been sold. But I don't think you'd sell anything like as many copies because I don't think you'd have the enthusiasm for it as you do when you've got 150 different people writing for it. And... You know, however many people are reading it, everybody who's reading it is pretty much reacting the same and saying there's such a breadth of variety of experience in this book. You have to really immerse yourself in it, even if as a dipper in it, in order to sort of fully get the emotional impact of what's happening with the essays. Yeah, and and not just the breadth of the experiences, but the breadth of the the stories, because each, each essay is on a different show. If you lose an essay, you lose that show. Well, exactly. That was something I didn't want to do. There are, you know, I had a great big list. You know, you saw the list mm, of did. things that I would have quite liked the book to cover. And there were, I think, something like maybe a dozen things on that list that didn't get picked up. But all the really important ones did. And most of the less important but more interesting ones did too. So I don't think there's many things that didn't make it into the book that really needed to be in there. I think... With something like 150 different TV programs covered across 60 years, I think we've pretty much covered most of the bases that people would have expected. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, look, as we come to the end of the interview, I'm going to ask you probably the hardest question. Um... Oh, my God. Do you think <laughs> these questions haven't been hard so far? <laughs> oh, they, these were easy in comparison, and you'll know why when, when I ask the question. And, and the question you're, not going is... to ask me to ch- you're not going to ask me to choose my favourite baby. Almost. Which of the books that you've put together have you been most satisfied by? Might not be your favourite, but most oh, satisfied. Oh, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Well, do you know what? In a way, the very first one, because to go through... Because it took something like two and a half years from start to actually being in print and to actually see a book in print with a publisher, even if it's a small press publisher, is such a beautiful moment. But in terms of what I set out to accomplish and what I think I did, you and who else? Yeah. Because Doctor Who's my thing, and it's easy, well, it's not easy, but it is, relatively speaking, easier to do something on Doctor Who because, you know, you're playing in your own sandpit. Yeah. But to go to something like British Telefantasy, because I'm not a Telefantasy fan. You know, a lot of my favourite other programmes have got nothing to do with science fiction or horror or whatever at all. 
And so there's a lot of stuff in this book that's kind of really outside of my sandpit. But I wanted to do it because I just thought that after you'd done Doctor Who, this was just the next logical step. And I also knew it would strike a chord so that it, because obviously you're also thinking at the same time, you want to sell as many copies as possible so you can make some money for the charities. So, you know, that was the the other thing you're thinking about. So I knew it would strike a chord. So this was something I wanted to do, even though it was going to be a lot less easy for me to do it. And the size of it as well, because I wasn't expecting it. I thought I'd maybe get 100 essays. I wasn't expecting nearer 200. So the size of it and the fact that it was a lot more of a stretch for me to work on means that when I got to the end of it and it came out, and I think it's a damn good book, you and who else is the one that probably has brought me the most satisfaction. Right, yes, because it it really is, listeners, the size of a small brick. That is not actually an exaggeration. (laughs) And And it's the same colour as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, if if you live in a reddish brick house, yes, yes. Yes. when when you were talking there, I was thinking, when you were going through the essays for you and who else, were you consciously thinking, oh, here's a show I've not watched, or here's a show I have watched, and could you even throw yeah. a percentage at how many you had and hadn't watched? Oh, I, I've watched fewer than half of them. I'll tell wow. you that. okay. Uh, probably, maybe it's about 60, 40, something like that. Mm. Perhaps even higher, I, I couldn't say. But yeah, there were there were a lot of essays talking about things I didn't know. But what I would do before I sat down and read each one would I would open up pages for that show on um, IMDb and Wikipedia and I'd familiarize myself with everything I needed to and then as I was going through the essays every time a character name or an actor's name came up if it wasn't something I knew I would check you know for the spelling and to find out who it was and to make sure that what the person was writing in the essay corresponded with what was on Wikipedia and IMDb just because you know, that's kind of what an editor has to do anyway. Yeah. But also so that even though I'm reading about TV series I haven't watched for those 60% or whatever it was, I've read enough of it by this point that I'm familiar enough with what the concepts are that I can see that what the person's writing in the essay corresponds with what somebody who's reading the essay who will have seen the programme will be thinking about. Yeah, and you can see, listeners, why it was a hell of a lot of work, you know, because not only is it a big book, but you're also doing that for the essays, which you wouldn't be necessarily doing for Doctor Who because you just know it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, God, 175 essays, and I've got to say, they probably took me, you know, an hour each to go through, even if they were the really simple ones, and some of them will have taken me two or three hours. Yeah, yeah, but all for a good cause. Um, well, yeah, I think uh, I think was it Ian Martin from our show who suggested the cause for you and who else? Um, yeah, he kind of was. It, he'd suggested that for something else, but we carried on. It was um, the tenth anniversary of Rose being on the telly. Ian Martin just emailed me out of the blue and said, "You know what we ought to do is have a, a thing on Facebook where everybody watches Rose at seven p.m. on the tenth anniversary and donates a tenner to charity." And I said, do you know what? That's a really good idea. Why don't you just, you know, make a page for it on Facebook and go for it? And he said, well, yeah, if I did that, you know, probably about three people would do it. But he said to me, if you do that, you'll get lots more because this was before Ian was doing the podcast and I was doing the podcast and I was writing for Starburst. So, you know, yeah, I probably yeah. read more people. And so we, I said to him, OK, let's do that. And I set up a page for it. And I said, right, what charity will it be? And he said to me, well, what was the charity 
because 10th anniversary of Rose, that Russell T. Davis chose for when he was in, uh, appeared on the Toby Haydock Who's Round. And he said, I think it was a Terence Higgins trust. So I wrote to Toby and said, what was it? Was it Terence Higgins? And Toby wrote back and said, yeah, it was Terence Higgins. And so we said, right, for the Terence Higgins trust. And then the morning after, we got about a dozen of us, I think, got emails from the Terence Higgins trust saying, right, we got 500 pounds of unexpected donations last night. Did something happen that we don't know about? (sighs) Wow. That's awesome. So... Yeah, so apart from the fact that it was lovely to realise that just something so simple on Facebook had raised, you know, not all of that £500, but certainly a large percentage of it. And then that very same night, I didn't actually watch Rose at 7 o'clock because I was busy doing something else, which was launching the book, You and Who Else. So when I launched the book, it struck me, well, with timing like that, the charity for this one had to be Terence Higgins Trust. So yeah. Indirectly, Ian Martin suggested the charity. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the show. It's been really good to go back over you and who who else and the other you and who books and, of course, the, the new book as well, Hating to Love. I know I'll be picking up a copy as soon as I can. Uh, late April, you're thinking? Uh, yeah, certainly um, before the midpoint of the year. I'm not sure how quickly these essays are going to come in. I'm assured they're going to be in within the next sort of two or three weeks but we'll see but you know i'd rather it's a good book than one that's put together quickly so if it doesn't come out till june it doesn't come out till june it's on the near horizon put it that way brilliant brilliant well i am looking forward to it and thank you so much for joining us Oh, you're welcome have i lived up to my reputation as the guy who just can't shut up well i think uh achievement unlocked and i'm gonna stop you in your tracks and say do you want another exclusive Oh, well, yes, please. Um, well, after Hating to Love comes out, and I'm not looking at getting this out until about a year later, but using some of the same people, but not all of them, because it's a slightly different angle, so I'm going to try and choose the people who I think can cover that angle more thoroughly. So it's going to be another book in what might turn out to be another series of books along similar themes to one another. But this time, instead of looking at the 52 worst Doctor Who stories, we're going to be looking at the most influential Doctor Who stories. Interesting. It's going to be called Stitches in Time. And it's essentially, I think, I think the number's going to be around 35 or 40. But it's going to be the 40 stories that had the biggest impact on the series in terms of introducing themes. Or establishing themes, I should say. Because it's not necessarily going to be the first story in which something appears, but it's going to be the story in which that thing is consolidated so that it becomes a part of the series. So that's going to be another book following this one, Stitches in Time, probably in about a year's time. That sounds very interesting too. You've you've got me hooked, JR. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope so, yeah. But I, I just sort of set that wheels in motion on that one this week, so I thought, well... That's got to be the way we finish the podcast tonight. Well, you've heard it here first. Thank you again so much for taking the time. It's quite late at night over there in the UK and early in the morning here. Thanks for having me on, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure. Always good to chat. You too. Cheers, then. 
Okay, and there you go. Hating to love, reevaluating the 52 worst Doctor Who stories of all time. Did you enjoy that interview? If you did, you can always write to us at hello at the dwshow.net and let us know. If you've read or are about to read Hating to Love, you can tell us all about that too. My thanks to J.R. Southall for doing that interview with me in March of 2016. And again, if you want to get your hands on Hating to Love, go to watchingbooks.weebly.com or facebook.com forward slash watchingbooks and you'll find... Uh, all the relevant links to doing so. All right, that's me done. I'm out of here. You'll be hearing from me again next weekend with a new episode of the Doctor Who show. I'm sure our other contributors have all sorts of stuff up their sleeves as well. It's a very exciting 2017 to come. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.